Welcome back. This episode, we continue with part two of the opinion of the court in Bittner v. United States. Enjoy. Section B. Widening our view beyond Section 5314 and Section 5321, we find other contextual clues pressing against the government's theory. Consider what the government itself has told the public about the BSA. In 2010, the Department of the Treasury issued a notice of proposed rulemaking warning that, under its proposed rules, a person who is required to file an FBAR and fails to properly file may be subject to a civil penalty not to exceed $10,000. Elsewhere, the government has told suspected FBAR violators that for the failure to file, the penalty cannot exceed $10,000. Instructions included with the FBAR form have cautioned that a person who is required to file an FBAR and fails to properly file may be subject to a civil penalty not to exceed $10,000. An IRS fact sheet has advised that for the FBAR, the penalty may be up to $10,000 if the failure to file is non-willful. Ms. Boyd herself received a similarly worded letter alerting her that, for the failure to file the FBAR, the penalty cannot exceed $10,000. None of these representations about the law's operation fits easily with the government's current theory. In all of these warnings, fact sheets, and instructions, the government seemed to tell the public that the failure to file a report represents a single violation exposing a non-willful violator to one $10,000 penalty. Nowhere in these materials did the government announce its current theory that a single deficient or untimely report can give rise to multiple violations, that the number of non-willful penalties may turn on the number of accounts, or that the $10,000 maximum penalty may be multiplied 272 times or more without respect to an individual's foreign holdings or net worth. Doubtless, the government's guidance documents do not control our analysis and cannot displace our independent obligation to interpret the law. But this court has long said that courts may consider the consistency of an agency's views when we weigh the persuasiveness of any interpretation it proffers in court. Here, the government has repeatedly issued guidance to the public at odds with the interpretation it now asks us to adopt. And surely that counts as one more reason yet to question whether its current position represents the best view of the law. The drafting history of the non-willful penalty provision undermines the government's theory, too. When Congress adopted the BSA in 1970, the law included penalties only for willful violations, 
and kept them at $1,000. It took many years before Congress, in 1986, authorized the government to impose penalties on a per-account basis for certain willful violations. And it took many years before Congress, in 2004, amended the law again to authorize penalties for non-willful violations. When crafting this latest provision, it would have been the simplest thing for Congress to model its work on its 1986 amendment and authorize per-account penalties for non-willful violations just as it had for certain willful ones. But Congress didn't do anything like that. The language it adopted for non-willful penalties in 2004 bears scant resemblance to the language it used when authorizing per-account penalties for certain willful violations in 1986. Consider as well Congress's statement of purpose. Congress has declared that the BSA's purpose is to require certain reports or records that may assist the government in everything from criminal and tax to intelligence and counterintelligence investigations. Here we see further evidence that the relevant legal duty the BSA establishes is the duty to file certain reports. We see evidence, too, that the point of these reports is to supply the government with information potentially relevant to various kinds of investigations, criminal and civil alike. But what we do not see is any indication that Congress sought to maximize penalties for every non-willful mistake, whether a late filing, a transposed account number, or an out-of-date bank address. The Secretary's regulations implementing the BSA convey the same message. Under those regulations, individuals with fewer than 25 accounts must provide details about each account, while those like Mr. Bittner with 25 or more accounts do not need to list each one or provide account-specific details about any of them. Instead, filers with 25 or more accounts need only provide the number of financial accounts and certain other basic information. Naturally, an individual must supply more detailed information if the secretary or his delegate later chooses to follow up and request it, but no detailed account-level information is required in the filer's initial report. It's yet another feature of the BSA and its regulatory scheme that suggests the law aims to provide the government with a report sufficient to tip it to the need for further investigation, not to ensure the presentation of every detail or maximize revenue for each mistake. The Secretary's regulation also points to some of the anomalies that accompany the government's per-account theory. On the government's telling, an individual with, say, three accounts, who makes non-willful errors when providing details about these accounts, 
faces a potential penalty of $30,000. He faces that penalty no matter how slight his errors, and regardless whether his foreign holdings or even net worth approach the same amount. Meanwhile, a person with 300 bank accounts runs far less risk of incurring any penalty. He doesn't have to provide any detail about his accounts, just correctly disclose how many he holds. Nor is this the only incongruity the government's theory invites. Consider someone who has a $10 million balance in a single account who non-wilfully fails to report that account. Everyone agrees he is subject to a single penalty of $10,000. Yet under the government's theory, another person engaging in the same non-wilful conduct with respect to a dozen foreign accounts with an aggregate balance of $10,001 would be subject to a penalty of $120,000. On the government's view, too, those who willfully violate the law may face lower penalties than those who violate the law non-wilfully. For example, an individual who holds $1 million in a foreign account during the course of a year, but withdraws it before the filing deadline and then willfully fails to file an FBAR, faces a maximum penalty of $100,000. But a person who errs non-willfully in listing 20 accounts with an aggregate balance of $50,000 can face a penalty of up to $200,000. Reading the law to apply non-willful penalties per report invites none of these curiosities. The government's per-account theory invites them all. The government does not dispute any of this, but replies that the per-report interpretation risks an anomaly of its own. After all, the government observes, the BSA affords the secretary considerable discretion in formulating reporting requirements. So much so, the government contends, that the secretary could require a separate report for each account and in that way effectively achieve a per-account penalty for non-willful violations. But what does this prove? Assuming the secretary could require more frequent reports, a question not before us, that would mean the secretary could also require less frequent reports, for example, every other year. Likewise, the secretary could reduce the amount of information required in those reports, say, expanding the tick box option to all filers, not just those with 25 or more accounts. Perhaps more fundamentally, whether the secretary may lawfully ordain more or fewer reports does nothing to answer the question whether the secretary may impose non-willful penalties on a per-report or per-account basis. That question would still remain. Section C. To the extent doubt persists at this point about the best reading of the BSA, 
a venerable principle supplies a way to resolve it. Under the rule of lenity, this court has long held statutes imposing penalties are to be construed strictly against the government and in favor of individuals. See Commissioner v. Acker, 1959. Following that rule here, requires us to favor a per-report approach that would restrain BSA penalties over a per-account theory that would greatly enhance them. The government resists this conclusion by seeking to distinguish Acker. That case involved a penalty provision in the Internal Revenue Code, the government emphasizes, while this case involves a penalty provision in the BSA. But that distinction makes no difference. The rule of lenity is not shackled to the Internal Revenue Code or any other chapter of federal statutory law. Instead, as Acker acknowledged, the law is settled that penal statutes are to be construed strictly and an individual is not to be subjected to a penalty unless the words of the statute plainly impose it. Notably, too, Acker cited to and relied on cases applying this same principle to penalty provisions under a wide array of statutes, including the Communications Act of 1934, a bankruptcy law, and the National Banking Act. Two additional features of this case make it a particularly appropriate candidate for the rule of lenity. First, the rule exists in part to protect the due process clause's promise that a fair warning should be given to the world in language that the common world will understand of what the law intends to do if a certain line is passed and the government's current theory poses a serious fair-notice problem. The relevant provisions of the BSA nowhere discuss per-account penalties for non-willful violations. A number of the government's own public guidance documents have seemingly warned of per-report, not per-account, penalties for non-willful violations. We are even told that until 2008 and 2009, when the government began aggressively enforcing FBAR penalties, many experienced tax professionals and return preparers were not aware of the FBAR reporting obligations, let alone aware of the government's current theory about the scope of penalties for non-willful violations. If many experienced accountants were unable to anticipate the government's current theory, we do not see how the common world had fair notice of it. Second, the question before us has criminal as well as civil ramifications. Section 5321 outlines civil penalties for non-willful and willful violations of the BSA. Next door, Section 5322, provides criminal sanctions for willfully violating the Act. The term violation or violating 
is a constant between these two provisions. Accordingly, if the government were right that violations accrue on a per-account rather than a per-report basis under Section 5321, the same rule would apply under Section 5322. Each willfully misstated or late-reported account, rather than each deficient or late-filed report, would give rise to a separate criminal violation carrying the possibility of a $250,000 fine and five years in prison. In a case like Mr. Bittner's, involving five reports and 272 accounts, that would mean a person who willfully violates the BSA could face a $68 million fine and 1,360 years in prison rather than a $1.25 million fine and 25 years in prison. In these circumstances, the rule of lenity, not to mention a dose of common sense, favors a strict construction. Part 3 Best read, the BSA treats the failure to file a legally compliant report as one violation carrying a maximum penalty of $10,000, not a cascade of such penalties calculated on a per-account basis. Because the Fifth Circuit thought otherwise, we reverse its judgment and remand the case for further proceedings consistent with this opinion. So ordered. We've come to the end of the opinion. Until next episode, thanks for listening to What SCOTUS Wrote Us.